Bird then this morning. If you would like to turn somewhere in your Bible, I would encourage you to turn a couple of different places. Uh, first to First Peter chapter five, the second Titus chapter one, and the third Acts chapter twenty. And you might want to just stick something in there. Um, we'll be uh, hopping around. First uh, Peter chapter five will be um, somewhat of our baseline passage this morning. But the other two will have opportunities to look at. We are concluding our series this morning on the church. We've been thinking about what the church is, how the church functions, uh, what theologians will refer to as ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. Uh, trying to glean. There's no book of ecclesiology in the New Testament, right? And in the whole Bible, there is no one book of the Bible we go to to learn everything we need to know to learn about the church. We're extracting this information from most of the pages of the New Testament, uh, gleaning thoughts and ideas from different places and putting them together and providing a sort of a systematic picture of what the church should look like and what the church is and what the church does. And we've been trying to look at that from different angles, different aspects of church identity, different aspects of church life. And uh, we've thought about things that relate to the church's mission. Last week, the Great Commission, we thought about worship. Uh, we've thought about the ordinances, how it is that we celebrate the gospel and how we remember the gospel and, and encourage one another in the gospel. We've talked about membership a couple of weeks, about membership. So we've been looking at the church's identity and the church's function. And this morning, we're going to come to a conclusion uh, in this series on what I'm calling church polity, or we might think of it more of, as church leadership. Uh, we could say a whole, much, a whole bunch more about uh, the church, uh, but I'm, we've pretty much exhausted most of the main ideas, the main issues there. But there are entire books that are devoted to this topic, but we've thought about the, the main things that are regarding uh, church identity and church life together. We're going to look at church polity this morning. I guess maybe the first thing that we ought to do is to explain what polity is, define what polity is. The word polity comes from the Greek word polis, which just means city. So if you're familiar with, for example, Indianapolis, the polis there at the end of that word indicates it's the city of Indiana. It's the main city of Indiana, the capital of Indiana. Our word polity or the word polis also occurs in our words politics or political, words that are uh, referencing civil government, right? Words that reference how our cities, our state, our country, nation, uh, is structured in terms of its government, in terms of its governance, how cities and states and countries are organized and how they operate together. In the theological sense, the word polity refers to the order, structure, and governance of the church. And it is preoccupied with questions like, how is the church organized and governed? How is the, what does the church's leadership look like? What is its leadership structure? How is authority delegated and exercised in the church? So polity is essential to the function of any church because order and structure and authority are foundational to really every matter of life. And they're foundational to God's own character and activity. Authority, order, structure are essential to understanding who God is, right? The scriptures say that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. 
God requires things to be done decently and in good order. We look at God's order. We look at God's authority. We see that he established those things even at the very beginning of creation itself. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 is striking in part because of the order with which God brings the world into existence. Go through the Genesis 1 account and God creates very methodically, creates very systematically, very intentionally, very deliberately over the course of those six days. Even the the timing of what he makes is structured, right? He creates over six days and then on the seventh day he rests. And what does that order of creation do? It really establishes our week, right? We work six days. There are six days where we have our time to, to go work, whether it's to work at our employment, our jobs, or to work at home. But then there's a day, the seventh day, when we gather together as God's people and we rest in what in God's character, in His gospel. We rest in His word. We rest in the worship that we offer. We rest in His presence as we meet together as the body of Christ. If we look at the three institutions that God has created, the home, the state, and the church, There's a very clear order that God has brought to each one. And he's established in each of those a very clear line of authority to govern and maintain that order in those institutions. I don't believe that God is honored in any way by dysfunctional, disordered, or chaotic churches. The New Testament is very clear how a church is to be structured and governed. There's a clear line of authority. There's a very clear authority There's a very clear order in churches, and that is necessary. It's essential for vibrant, healthy, faithful churches. If we're going to be the kind of church that God desires us to be, there needs to be order. There needs to be a clear line of authority. So that brings us then to sort of the bulk of what we're talking about today, which is how do we practice church polity? How do we practice church polity? What does church polity look like? What is this order? What is this governance? What does this line of authority look like? Well, I think we need to begin our discussion of church polity with Jesus Christ himself, because Jesus Christ himself is the Lord and head of the church. When Peter concludes his sermon at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. In other words, Jesus, the Jesus that they nailed to the cross, he is, in, he is explaining to them that he is both Lord and Christ. Now, the word Christ in Greek is the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, so a, a reference for the king of Israel. God sent Jesus into our world as the Christ, as the king who would reign over his eternal kingdom and over those people whom he would bring into that kingdom. So Jesus is king. He is Christ over all things. And if he is Christ, certainly over all things, then he would be Christ over the church as well. Peter says that he is also Lord. God made him Lord. The word Lord refers to one who possesses absolute authority like a king or like an emperor. In fact, in the first century, This word Lord was applied in the secular culture to the Roman emperor because the Romans believed that the emperor possessed all authority. They even worshipped him as a god. They believed that he possessed the summation of divine authority. If you looked at all of the the Roman gods that they worshipped, they believed that the summation of all of the divine power that existed in the various gods 
in their pantheon resided with the emperor himself. So, so much that they would actually worship the emperor. In fact, when Christians were compelled to offer sacrifices of worship to the emperor and to declare that Caesar is Lord, they refused. And they instead confessed that Jesus is Lord, even at the risk of their own lives. In the book of Revelation, John refers to Jesus as Ponto Crator, as Lord of all, Lord over all. And he refers to him as Lord of Lords to suggest that Jesus' authority and his rule infinitely supersede all earthly powers. So Jesus is Lord over all. And just as he is king over all, if he is king over all, it means that he would certainly be king over the church. If Jesus is Lord over all, then it certainly means he would be Lord over over the church. If God made Jesus to be both Lord and Christ over all things, then his lordship and his kingship certainly apply to the church. And that's the point that Paul makes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul's making clear here the lordship, the kingship of Christ over all things. This is what he says, how he applies it to the church in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus expresses his lordship over the church in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he says, I tell you, talking to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, on the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is the son of the living God, that he is the Christ, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here Jesus claims responsibility for the church. He is the Lord. He is the church's Lord. He is the church's head. He will build the church and it will be his church and nothing, not even the full force of hellish power that assails it will overcome it. So as as its head and Lord, Jesus is the church's builder. He is the church's sustainer. He is the church's preserver and he is the church's victor. In 1 Peter 5, verse 4, which you will probably have open, you, if you haven't turned there yet, you, you can. You can look at verse 4 just very briefly. You'll see, we'll read it in a minute, but you'll see that the Apostle Peter refers to Jesus in verse 4 as the chief shepherd of the church. He is the one who protects and preserves and cares for his church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that Christ has a vested interest in the church's prosperity, in the church's vitality, in the church's success. Why? Because he obtained the church with his own blood. So again, when we talk about polity, we tend to sort of run immediately to the human leaders who lead the church. But I want us to make sure that we understand that Jesus Christ is the head and Lord of the church. The church, capital C, belongs to him. This church, this local body, belongs to Christ. He is the church's ultimate authority, capital C, and he is this church's authority, ultimate authority, lowercase c. Therefore, if Christ is both Lord, head and Lord of the church, we are to submit to him as a church. We're to submit to him 
and to his leadership. We obey him and we obey his leadership by obeying his commands. And he's been so gracious to give us his Holy Spirit to guide us in our obedience so that we might obey him faithfully. As we are walking in the Spirit, as we are walking with the Spirit, as the life of the Spirit is at work in us, then we're going to submit ourselves to Christ and we'll obey Him in all that He leads us to do. Now, before we move away from Jesus as being the head and Lord of the church, I want to just briefly just make three implications for what this means for us. What does Christ's headship, what does Christ's lordship mean for our church, for the church in general? Well, first... Because Christ is the head of our church, we are autonomous. We use the word autonomy to describe the self-governing uh, aspect of the church. The church is not beholden to some super-ecclesiastical super body like a synod or like a, a general assembly or like a council, a church council, or to a denomination. Autonomous just simply means self-governing. We take our directives from Christ himself. If Christ is our ultimate authority, then we, re- we report to him. We submit ourselves to him. We obey his word, which provides for us his leadership for us. Second implication is that if Christ is the Lord and head of the church, then we need to be attentive to God's word so that we can submit to Christ and obey him. We can't follow the Lord if we don't know what he would have us to do. And he has been so gracious to give us his word so that we might not only know what we ought to do, but so that then we can obey in doing those very things. So if we're going to submit to Christ, if we're going to obey him as is proper, we must continually be reading and hearing and studying God's word which again reinforces this idea of why we preach God's word when, we, when the assembly gathers together. Why we devote ourselves to various Bible studies, right? Why we, it is important for us to be a part of the, 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 the assembly, of the gathering together, so that God's word is always before us, so that we know what he requires of us, and so that we can fall in line with what he expects of us. The third implication of Christ's lordship is the need to remain faithful to, to Christ and to his church, even in spite of bad leaders. We're going to talk a good bit about these leaders and what they should be. But they're, because leaders are fallible men, because they are subject to temptation, because they continue to fight the battles of the flesh, because they are maybe prone to deception, because we have an enemy who is coming after us, seeking whomever he may devour, there will be times where there will be bad leaders in the church. In fact, I just finished listening to a podcast that chronicled uh, Mark Driscoll and Mark Mars Hill Church, right? If you happen to know him and know that church and know how things played out and kind of went through and chronicled things, there will sometimes be bad leaders in the church. One of the things that made me most disheartened about that podcast is how some people just inevitably gave up on the church. Friends, the church is Christ's church. Do not ever give up on the church because of some bad leaders. Yes, they can leave some damage in their wake. Yes, there will be some carnage if they have given themselves over to the things of this world or submitted themselves to temptation instead of truly faithfully following Christ. But don't ever leave the church because the church is not a church of men. It is the church of Christ. It is Christ's church. Even poor, fallible men who lead it astray 
Do not let them capture your heart. For the church, as weak as she is, for as fallible as she is, she is still Christ's church, and He has made His commitment to her with at the cost of His own blood. Please, please don't ever give up on Christ's church. It is His church. Remain faithful to Christ. Remain faithful to His church, even in spite of bad leaders. So Christ is the head and Lord of the church. And as we saw last week in the Great Commission, the Father has given all authority to Jesus. And so in structuring and ordering the church, Christ has delegated His authority to the church for the purpose of self-governance. Again, we do not answer to some denomination. We don't answer to some synod or some um, church council or some extra, extra ecclesial body. We submit ourselves to Christ. He has delegated His authority to us for the purpose of self-governance. And that is why we believe the church ought to be autonomous, because Christ has vested his authority in the church. But the church, possessing Christ's authority to govern itself under his lordship, has also vested much of that leadership to members within its midst to lead the church to follow Christ and also to care for his people. And these human leaders whom Christ appoints for the church, are called, well, they're called by three different names. Now, I want to take some time to go through this because I'm not sure that sometimes it's always made clear. There are three names that we refer to as the human leaders of the church. And we see two of those names in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. So if you happen to have your Bible open there or marked there, you might want to turn over to read it. But two of those names appear in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So we see two terms that Titus uses here, or Paul uses here in his letter to Titus. That refer to the same person. Paul says in verse 5, he tells Titus to appoint appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete. And then he says in verse 7, he calls these elders overseers. So we can see these church leaders, same, same office, same person, by two different names, elders and overseers. The third word that we apply to these same people, same office, same people, are, is the word pastor. And that word appears only once in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul explains that one of the gifts that God has given to the church are pastors. So we can say that these leaders of the church are called elders, overseers, and pastors. The three refer to the same office, refer to the same person, and those names are interchangeable. An elder is an overseer and a pastor. An overseer is an elder and a pastor. A pastor is an elder and an overseer. Those three things are all really three titles expressing one office, one person. Okay? Now, that's kind of complicated, right? Why do we use three terms to describe one person? And I think it's because all three of those, not one word really captures the main responsibilities of a elder, pastor, overseer. All three of those terms kind of capture or summarize the main responsibilities of an elder. 
And I think we see those things come together in two passages especially. The first one in 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles open to that passage, you might want to look at it. Look at it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here Peter is writing to churches that are scattered throughout what we would call today the modern country of Turkey, the modern nation of Turkey. There are cities all in that region. There are churches there. And Peter here is directing his thoughts to the elders of those churches. And he charges them with duties that correspond to these titles, pastor, elder, Overseer. Let's look at the word pastor first, the title pastor. The word pastor is really a Latin word that means shepherd. And that's exactly what it is. If you were learning Latin and you got to the, literally the word pastor, you would translate that word as shepherd. So we just simply brought the word over from Latin into English. The word pastor means shepherds, a shepherd. Church pastors are spiritual shepherds. And it's quite appropriate because the Bible uses this shepherding imagery Throughout the, throughout the Bible to express God's relationship with his people. In Psalm 23, verse 1, we read that the Lord is what? My shepherd. In Psalm 100, verse 3, we refer to the psalmist that refers to God's people as we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, Jesus says what about his, himself? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for who? The sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock of sheep and one shepherd. In Peter here, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. So what does shepherding tell us about a pastor's ministry? Well, what do we think of when we think of a shepherd? We think of their care for the sheep they make sure that their sheep are fed they lead as the psalmist says psalm 23 they lead the the sheep to the green pastures to feed they bring them to the fresh water to drink they herd them together so that none wanders off into danger they protect them from predators and from other dangers that would bring them harm they bind up their wounds and nurse them to health when they are injured this is what god does for his own people Before we even get to the human shepherds, this is what God does for his own people. God cares for us in every way possible. He provides for our needs. He leads us safely in his ways. He protects us from spiritual harm. He binds binds up our wounds. God greatly cares for his people. And so Peter here is exhorting, as it says in verse 1, his fellow elders to, as he says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So the word pastor there is not used, but the imagery is, right? Peter is calling the elders to shepherd God's flock, to shepherd the church. So one of the main responsibilities of a pastor, elder, overseer is to shepherd the church. 
which again Peter calls here in verse 2, the flock of God that is among you, that is the local church. The local church has faithful men who pastor God's people. And by that pastoring, by that shepherding, the elder pastor overseer cares for the church. He nourishes it. He provides for its needs. He binds up its wounds. And he protects them from danger. All again as an agent of Christ, the chief shepherd himself. We are not able to do that ourselves. But Christ, through his Holy Spirit, works in these human men to facilitate his ministry to his church. So even as pastors shepherd, it's not of their own accord. It's not of their own ability. It's not of their own wisdom. It's not of their own training. It is Christ at work in us to be able to facilitate that and to do that for the body of Christ. All right, that's the title pastor. Peter also uses the word elder to identify these church leaders. So in verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you. And the word elder in Greek just simply means an older one. Okay, those who are typically older in age. So the elders are the older ones in the church. But I don't think Peter here or the other New Testament writers are referring to elders more in terms of their age as he is their spiritual maturity, right? We all come to faith in Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one can be a, those sermons ago, right? No one can be a Christian apart from believing in the gospel. So if you have an 80-year-old man who's a recent convert, but maybe a 40-year-old man who's been walking with Christ for 20 years, the elder is not the 80-year-old man just on the basis of his age. The elder is the, is the 40-year-old man who's been walking with Christ and is more mature in Christ because he's been walking with Christ. There should be more spiritual maturity in him. So the apostles envision, Peter envisions here in chapter 5, that spiritually mature men would lead the church. And the reason to put spiritually mature men in leadership is so that they can be an example for the church regarding what spiritual maturity looks like, right? If I'm to grow in Christ, if I am to be continuing to walk with Christ and becoming more and more sanctified and more and more mature, one of the means of grace that God's given us to be able to do that is to be able to look at certain men who are modeling that for the congregation. Elders are to be spiritually mature men. They're to be examples of spiritual maturity. In fact, Peter says in verse 3, he says that elders are to be examples to the flock. He's connecting the idea of the word elder to what that indicates, what that means, why that's important. They're to be examples to the flock. Elders should be spiritually mature men who reflect to the church what a godly life looks like. Church members can look at these men and see their spiritual maturity on display. Their lives are lived right before our eyes. We can see an example as a pattern for ourselves as to how I can grow in spiritual maturity. And the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, which I think he's referring here to the shepherd, to the pastors, the elders, the overseers. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, these men are on display. They are examples. You're to look to them. You're to learn from them. And you're to imitate them. I think this is also why First uh, Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, list out the qualifications of an elder. And just for the sake of the record, I want to read Titus 1, 
5 through 9. They're very similar in what they say. There's an overlap there, but I'll just read Titus's version of it. Paul writes, Appoint elders in every town. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, if you go through and read those things, those aren't really the qualities of a spiritual superhero, right? We maybe tend to think of elders as sort of Christians in capes, right? There are spiritual superheroes. They're the super holy men, right? They're the ones who are sort of at a, at a level above everybody else. But really, if you go through and list all of those qualities, aren't those things that we would want every Christian to be and do? Those, those are things that we want. I mean, if, if, my own, if my own children, well, if my own sons never became elders in a church, if someone told me your sons will be, have these character qualities, man, I would be thrilled. I'd be beyond overjoyed. These are qualities that we want all Christians to possess, all Christians to aspire to. And so as we give these uh, leadership qualities or attributes for elders, the reason why it's so important for them to possess it is not because there's something special, there's not some extra level of holiness about them, it's so that they can model for the rest of the body what we should all be striving for and all should be seeking to attain. The only attribute that really distinguishes an elder from every other Christian is the ability to teach. First Timothy 3.2 summarizes Titus 1.9 by saying that an elder must be able to teach. And that is because by his teaching ministry, the elder, or the pastor, or the overseer is able to shepherd and care for the church. The, we'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the main ministries of an elder, one of the main ministries of a pastor, is the preaching and teaching of God's word. That is how we best care for the flock. And so there needs to be that ability to teach. But bracket that one out for a minute, and every, everything else we would want to see all Christians be. And so elders are examples to the flock. Third, the third title here is that of overseer. And that title we've already seen in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. It's also used in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, and Philippians 1, 1. Now again, Peter does not use this title, but he does point to the responsibility that is associated with being an overseer in verse 2, when he says that as they conduct their ministry, they are exercising oversight. So that's what an overseer does, right? An overseer oversees. An overseer exercises oversight. And lest we want to dispel any kind of myth about what an overseer is, in the Greek language, the word overseer literally means to see over. And again, it explains the responsibility that these men are to have. In some of the older English versions, the word bishop might be used. But overseers oversee. And oversight points to leadership, to management, and even to care. Pastors and elders oversee the lives of their members so that they might shepherd them well. They might care for them well. They might protect them. Pastors are overseers so that they can oversee the ministry of the church so that it functions in a healthy and faithful way. 
So even though all of these terms are not used here in 1 Peter chapter 5, all three ideas are here. All three responsibilities are listed here as Peter is charging these elders. The other passage that brings these three ideas together of pastor, elder, overseer is in Acts 20. And if you're happening to look at that passage, you'll notice in verse 17 that Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. And as he is on his way back, he stops in Miletus and he calls for the Ephesian elders of the church. The word elder is used in verse 17. He calls the elders of the church to come to Miletus. He wants to give them sort of one last farewell, one last pastoral charge as to how they're going to exercise their ministry. In verse 28, he charges the Ephesian elders concerning the conduct of their ministry. He says this, Acts 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul identifies these elders as overseers, right? He's charging these elders and overseers to do what? To care for the church of God, which he refers to earlier in that verse as the flock. So he's using that pastoral imagery, imagery, that shepherding imagery. These elder overseers are to pastor, to act as shepherds as they care for the church in Ephesus. So Paul here is underscoring what he says in Titus chapter 1 verse 7, that an elder's ministry, a pastor's ministry, an overseer's ministry is a stewardship from God. They have received this gift from God, God's own precious bride, his flock, to care for and to nurture and to, and to teach and to encourage and to sanctify. But this church is not their church. It is given to them as a stewardship, right? It is Jesus' church. This church belongs to him. He's the Lord of the church. He's the chief shepherd of the flock. Why? Because he obtained it with his own blood. Jesus paid the redemption price for them to be his people when he died on the cross for their sins. The church belongs to Jesus. Jesus entrusts the church, his church, to these pastors, elders, overseers, to shepherd them and to care for them in his stead. And so pastors, elders, overseers then minister in Christ's stead by applying Christ's work among his people. That's the main spirit of these terms. The terms, that's why I love going into these terms, because they express so well what these men are to do. Let's just make a couple more observations about these pastors, elders, and overseers before we think about some important applications for us. First, the, the office of pastor, elder, overseer belongs only to men. Men are, on, are only the ones who are qualified to serve in this role. And that's evident by the masculine pronouns that are used in reference to these leaders and in the qualification that the elder be the husband of one wife. Again, this is God's sovereign wisdom. God is laying out an order for his church, just as he laid out an order for the home, just as he's laid out an order for society. This is God's plan. This is God's order of authority for the church. Secondly, a church ought to be led by a plurality of elders. The church ought to be led by a plurality of elders. That means that every church should have more than one elder to provide spiritual care and leadership. Nearly every passage that we've already looked to 
refers to elders in the plural. Other passages like Acts 14.23, Acts 20.17, James 5.14, and Titus 1.5 use phrasing like elders plural in every church singular or elders plural of the church singular. So every church ought to have multiple elders to lead it. Because of the plurality of elders, there is no hierarchy among the elders. Every elder is the same in his calling, in his qualification, and in his authority. So even among our own elders here in this church, there's no distinction between me and John and Wade. You can call us by the same terms, right? We are all pastors. We are all elders. We are all overseers. Sometimes we refer to Wade and John as elders and Jim as the pastor just as a matter of convenience, right? I'm the vocational one. I'm the one who's here full time. I'm the one who's paid by the church to devote his time to this task. But there's really no difference among the three of us. We all function in the same way. And there's no greater importance to me because I'm the pastor, because I'm, I'm paid by the church. If we have a meeting and it's two to one and I'm on the minority, guess what? I don't get to stack the vote. I don't, my vote doesn't carry any extra weight to it. We are all equals in this endeavor. And that's what, that's such a great blessing to me personally, because it, it's some accountability for me. It's really accountability for all of us. There's no one elder who is more important than the other elders. We are all functioning together in this plurality so that we might lead the church in the way that God would have us. Plurality is essential to for us to hold one another accountable. It's also essential for us to divide the labor of caring for and leading a church. Again, you shouldn't hold me in higher regard than John or Wade just because I'm set aside by the church vocationally or because I'm the one who's in the pulpit most Sunday mornings. If you have a need for prayer, you can seek all three of us out. If you have a need for counsel, John and Wade will give you really good advice in addition to me, I hope, right? We all function Differently, We all have different gifts. We have different perspectives. But we are all functioning together in this ministry that God has given to us. Third observation. The main ways that the pastors, elders, overseers shepherd the church is through the ministry of the word and prayer. The ministry of the word and prayer. When the early church faced a crisis in attending to the needs of the poor, the apostles, who were sort of proto-elders, if you will, sort of became the the example for what future elders would be, they said in Acts 6-4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So elders as the church's primary leaders will shepherd the church best when they are exercising the ministries of word and prayer. So let's think about each of those just for a moment. The ministry of the word. Elders shepherd the church through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Hebrews 13-7 says, remember your leaders. What do they do? Those who spoke the word of God to you. In Titus 1.9, Paul says that, again, referring to what an elder must be, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, this is why elders must be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. They must be able to explain and apply God's word to your life so that God can care for you and lead you into greater spiritual maturity through that word. As we think about prayer, 
elders shepherd the word, shepherd the church through prayer for the church. In James chapter 5, verse 14, James writes, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So if you have a need for prayer, James is saying here, contact the elders, call the elders. And I would just say here that you're welcome to call on us at any time. A really great time for us to pray for you is on Sunday mornings after church. And that, that happens. We're not maybe always strategically positioned, but I'm always at the back door usually. And, and I know John and Wade will be sometimes down here at the front. We'll try to be maybe more better about that, having an elder up here. But if you have a need for prayer, just simply seek one of us out and we'll come together. And we'll even pull together maybe people who have a, have a, have a gift to pray or have a, have a desire to pray. And we can pray for whatever needs you're going through. So don't hesitate to ask. If you have need for prayer, that's one of the best ways that we can care for the church. The fourth, last observation here, the church holds pastors, elders, overseers accountable. So pastors, elders, and overseers don't have carte blanche authority over the church. We receive our authority from you. You have called us out. You have affirmed us. You have voted us to have this position. You've called us to this position, and we receive our authority from the church. Remember the hierarchy. Christ, Lord and head of the church, he delegates that authority to his church. The church then vests some of that authority in elders. And so one of the great ways the church can play into an elder's ministry is by holding the elders accountable for their ministry. When the Galatians had feared, had veered from the gospel, Paul didn't rebuke the elders of the Galatian church. Who did he rebuke? He rebuked the whole church. He's like, you, the whole church, should have known the gospel. You should have heard that there was a a straying from that, and you should have held your elders accountable, even if he didn't use those words, because they were the ones responsible for safeguarding the gospel and holding their elders accountable. All right, let's close then with some applications, just very briefly, some important applications about elders and their ministry. Number one, seek out the pastoral care of elders. Seek out the pastoral care of the elders. We are to be actively serving, actively caring for the church, but it's impossible for us to know every need of every family all the time. So if you're not receiving ministry or you are in the need of ministry that we don't know about, please seek it out. Again, we're here to pray with you. We're here to counsel you. We're here to encourage you. We're here to point you to the word for all of life's needs and issues. Number two, obey your elders. Obey your elders. The church corporately holds us accountable as elders, but the word also encourages members to obey their elders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And so if pastors and elders are vested with authority to care for, to lead, and to oversee the church, then church members should submit to their leaders. Pastors and elders and overseers ought to also be careful to shepherd the church gently and kindly and patiently, just as Jesus Christ himself does. Application number three, encourage your elders. Encourage your elders. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So you can encourage your elders by honoring them, by, think, by thinking highly of them. 
and by giving them an honor that expresses your appreciation for their ministry. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I love that verse. Basically says the church wants happy elders. You are better served when the elders are rejoicing and the elders are grateful for their ministry. You don't want groaning or complaining elders. So do what you can to encourage them. It says that would be of no advantage to you to have grumpy elders. We ought not to be grumpy anyway. Sometimes we get a little grumpy with confession, okay? But the best way that you can encourage us is by being joyful, by, be, by rejoicing in the work that God has given us to do. Number four, fourth application, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. Pastors and elders have been called to a divine ministry, the, the ministry of applying Christ's love and care to the church. And I'll just be honest, that is an impossible task. It is impossible for us to love you and care for you like Jesus apart from his help. Thankfully, he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to apply the character of Christ to our lives. Thankfully, he's given us his word to show us how we are to minister. But please, we know that God works by means of prayer. And so I would encourage you to pray for your pastors and elders that God would help them and aid them as, and equip them as they um, carry out their ministry. And one additional thing in this line as well, let me encourage you to take those passages from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 and use them as a prayer list for your elders, right? Because the qualifications that bring us into eldership are the qualifications that keep us in eldership. I don't have to like, well, I don't have to do those things anymore. I met that standard. That's, that's, back, that's back there and done with. No, we continue to have to live according to those standards and to have those attributes and those characteristics and qualities. And friends, we live in a very difficult world. We face temptation like everybody else. We struggle with our own issues, our own, our own fight with the, with the flesh, right? We still have an enemy who's seeking to destroy us. And so we need you to pray that list in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that we would continue to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then last application, number five, pray for the men in our church so that God would raise up new elders. Pray for the men in our church so that God can raise up new elders. And again, I would encourage you, take that passage in 1 Timothy 3, take that passage in Titus chapter 1, and use it as a prayer list for every man in the church. The church will always need good elders. And the pool we have to draw from is right here within this church. We're not looking for elders outside the church. We're looking for elders from within here. We need to assume that every man in the church, even the young ones who maybe aren't ready to be elders, we need to assume that every elder, every man, man in the church is a potential elder. So I would encourage you to take your church directory, take your Bible, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and as I encouraged you a few weeks ago, pray through the church directory as you're praying for the men in the church Pray those things from Titus and Timothy for them so that at the right time, God will raise up new elders in our midst. Not every man in the church will be an elder. But could you imagine what it would be like if every 
man in the church was elder qualified? Would you like men who are above reproach? Would you like men who are self-controlled? Would you like men who are disciplined? Would you like men who are holy? We would want all the men in the church to be that way. What would God do with our church if every man met those qualifications, even without serving? So let me encourage you to pray for elder qualified men in our church. In a society that values its individualism, in a culture that rejects authority, in a time when people are skeptical of of their leaders, we should take special heed to be grateful for how God has ordered and structured his church. God has given his church a blueprint for faithful leadership so that God's people might be led well and might be cared for well at all times. We read of the good blessing of leadership in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he, God, dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. May that blessing at the hands of good and faithful men always be present in here, uh, here at Trinity Community Church. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your provision of godly leadership for the church. For those of us who serve in that capacity, Lord, we confess that we are fallible men. We are weak men. We are imperfect men. We are men who sometimes seems maybe lack wisdom, lack understanding, lack direction. But we're thankful, Lord, you've given to us Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church, as the one who really is the head of the church, as the one who really is the leader of the church. Because we look to your example, Lord. We follow your example. We obey your word. We seek your help through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we might be faithful men to lead your church well. We thank you that you care for your church. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work in us to make us more and more like Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given us people, men, Lord, who would help us in that endeavor. Help them, Lord, to faithfully discharge their duty. And by their ministry, Lord, would you grow a faithful and healthy church for your glory and honor. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for what you've taught us about the church. And we pray that you would help us to commit these things to our hearts and minds and that we would seek to live faithfully with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.